choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 283 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, encouragement from the President. In the White House, President Nixon was profoundly concerned for Apollo 13. Ever since Apollo 8's successful lunar orbit, just one month before his inauguration, Nixon had developed a fascination with moon flight and a special admiration for the crew of that first circumlunar trip. After their return from the moon, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders had been invited to attend the new president's inauguration, and then later, when he had moved into the White House, to join him for dinner, not in one of the formal dining rooms on the first floor of the mansion, but in the family quarters upstairs. Nixon was so impressed with the crew of Apollo 8 that he appointed Bill Anders as the executive secretary of the National Aeronautics and Space Council, an advisory body traditionally chaired by the vice president, in this case, Spiro T. Agnew. Last Saturday, when Anders' old Apollo 8 crewmate Jim Lovell boarded Apollo 13, It was the new executive secretary's responsibility to accompany the vice president down to Florida for the launch. After the crew was safely on its way to the moon, Agnew flew off for a political event in Iowa, and Anders was free to go on his way. On Monday, of course, that all changed, when Apollo 13 began to bang and vent. Both Agnew and Nixon made it clear that they wanted to be kept posted of events, and the job fell to the National Aeronautics and Space Council. Anders himself was not ordered to Washington right away, but his assistant, Chuck Friedlander, was, receiving instructions to fly promptly from Florida to deliver twice-hourly updates in the cabinet room of the White House. The next day Anders arrived, and both he and Friedlander were called into the Oval Office to consult with the President personally. When the two men presented themselves, Nixon had just one question. Bill, I want to know what the odds are that this crew is going to come back. The odds, Mr. President? Anders asked. Yes, a statistical likelihood. Well, sir, if I had to give odds at this point, I'd say 60-40. The President snorted disapprovingly. I've already talked to Frank Borman. He said 65-35. Anders and Friedlander looked at each other. Well, Mr. President, Anders said accommodatingly, I suppose Frank knows best. The two men spent much of Tuesday and Wednesday in a small office adjoining Nixon's, 
watching the TV coverage of the mission with Apollo 11 veteran Mike Collins drafting statements with a presidential speechwriter and preparing themselves to provide the president with running odds as he requested them. Now, at the end of the day on Wednesday, Nixon seemed satisfied that the percentages had turned in favor of the Apollo 13 crew, and he decided that it was time to call their families and offer his own words of encouragement. He started with the wife of the commander whose achievements he had respected so much in 1968. Mrs. Lovell, a White House operator's voice said, Yes? Marilyn was nearly out of breath after running to the master bedroom. Hold for the president, please. Marilyn waited through a few seconds of silence and then heard a click and a receiver being lifted. Marilyn, said a familiar growly voice, this is the president. Yes, Mr. President. How are you? I'm just fine, Marilyn. But more important, how are you? Well, Mr. President, we're holding up the best we can. And how are Barbara and Jay and Susan and Jeffrey? About as well as can be expected, Mr. President. I'm not so sure Jeffrey understands quite what's going on, but the other three are following everything on TV. Well, I just wanted you to know, Marilyn, that your president and the entire nation are watching your husband's progress with concern. Everything is being done to bring Jim home. Bill Anders, an old friend of yours, has been briefing me. That's nice to hear, Mr. President. Please give Bill my best. I certainly will, Marilyn, and Mrs. Nixon wants you to know that her prayers are with you. Hang on for just a couple more days, and maybe we'll all get the chance to have dinner together again at the White House. I would enjoy that very much, Mr. President. Well then, we'll see you soon. And the line went dead. Back in space, the Apollo 13 crew did not have enough time for encouraging phone calls from the president. As the Wednesday evening dinner hour passed and night fell in Houston, Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes had a lot more on their minds than the mid-course correction coming up in a few hours. Mission Control had just decided that for one brief period, the command module Odyssey that had been offline since Monday night would be powered back up and brought online. For nearly two days since the three astronauts abandoned the command module and floated over to the Aquarius, Odyssey had been in a state of almost constant cold soak. Bad as this was for the men in the relatively insulated cocoon of the cockpit, it was even worse for all the electronic equipment lying beneath the thin skin of the spacecraft. With temperatures outside the ship down to minus 280 degrees Fahrenheit, even the best passive thermal control roll was not enough to keep the electrical equipment warm. Instead of relying on the PTC roll alone, the most sensitive hardware was also equipped with heaters, that would switch on when the ship rotated away from the glare of the sun and switch off when it rotated back into it. But when Odyssey was shut down, the heaters went off as well. Of all the millions of command module systems, 
Few were more sensitive to the cold or more essential for reentry than the attitude control jets and the guidance platform. The jets in the command module, like the jets in the limb, ran on a liquid fuel that flashed into gas when vented into space. This liquid could only be cooled for so long before it turned to ice or thick slush, which would make it impossible to feed through the fuel lines and into the thrusters. The guidance platform was even more sensitive to the cold. If the temperature of the platform fell too far, the lubricant that kept its three gyroscopes spinning on their post would become viscous, causing the platform to become sluggish and imprecise. At the same time, the system's finely milled beryllium components would begin to contract, throwing the balance of the carefully calibrated instrument even further off. On Wednesday night, with the command module facing at least 40 more hours of coasting through the deep freeze of space, Gary Cohen, the Gold Team's Guidance, Navigation, and Control Officer, or GNC, decided to ask around and find out how much more cold his system could take. The first person he spoke to was the on-site representative of the subcontractor that manufactured the guidance platform. Cohen asked the representative to consult his manufacturing records and see what experience they had powering up an inertial maneuvering unit from a completely cold state to fully operational. The engineer told Cohen they didn't have any experience with that because the unit was supposed to be heated. The manufacturer already knew that if you try to run it without the heaters, the thing will not work. With no useful data available, the GNC, as well as the FIDOs, GUIDOs, and ECOMs, knew there was only one answer. At some point, well before re-entry, the command module's heat sensors and telemetry would have to be powered up for a short time to allow the controllers to check on the state of the ship's components. If the systems were found out to be too cold, the heaters might have to be used. But powering up the command module at all, even just long enough to take the ship's temperature, would draw precious energy from the re-entry batteries. But with the limb available to help top off the batteries, an amp or two could probably be spared. It was at 7 p.m. Wednesday that Jack Swigert was given the word to bring his command module briefly to life. And Jim, uh, we have a, a lengthy procedure here for powering up the CSM and turning on instrumentation so we can check the TM. And this will take a large piece of scratch paper whenever you're ready to copy. This is the power up the CSM? That's a firm. Lovell cut his connection to the ground and looked over his shoulder at Swigert, who had been sorting through food packets and taking inventory of the crew's remaining supplies, and who now looked up, surprised. You follow this? Lovell asked. Sure, Swigert said. I'm just assuming it's a mistake. Go figure, Lovell said, then switched back on the air. 
Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll have Jack uh, get configured. He can copy that down, and I'll have to look at the stuff. Just stand by. Okay. Swigert snatched up a nearby flight plan, removed his pen from the sleeve pocket of his jumpsuit, and signed on the air himself. Okay, Vance, uh, how do you read the Aquarius? Hey, read you loud and clear, Aquarius. Is it uh, cool in there now? Okay. Yeah, you see, it's pretty cool. Uh, this is the third officer on this LEM crew here, ready to copy. Okay. Uh, Jack, this is a lengthy procedure. Take uh, probably two or three pages. It assumes that you are in your nominal configuration, uh, which was sent up, or, or in your baseline configuration, which was sent up to you earlier today. Okay, I can uh, verify that we are in that configuration with the exception of panel 382, the water accumulator, which I've left off in case we wanted to uh, uh, get some more drinking water out of the uh, command module. And I'll uh, get, put those in the proper configuration before we do anything. Uh, okay, ready to copy. Okay, go ahead. Swigert turned to the blank backsides of his flight plan sheets. As Brand dictated, Swigert started furiously copying, and both men could see it would be slow going at best. There were batteries to engage, buses to connect, inverters to switch, sensors to activate, antennas to maneuver, telemetry to turn on, etc. Worse, Unlike any other activation procedure Swigert had ever rehearsed, this one was entirely improvised, a mere partial power-up. He would never have dreamed of attempting it before. Nevertheless, about a half hour after Swigert had begun writing the procedure down, he finished, pulled off his headset, and floated up the tunnel into Odyssey to put what Brand had read him into practice. Down in Aquarius, Lovell and Hayes had no real evidence of the work Swigert was doing beyond the sound of the occasional snap switch or thrown breaker. But on the ground, things were different. At 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening, the goal team was on watch, which meant that Buck Willoughby was at the GNC console, Chuck Dieterich was at the retro console, Dave Reed was the Fido, and Cy Libergott, who had swapped shifts with Tiger Team member John Aaron, was the ECOM. On Libergott's screen, which for the past two days had been blinking nothing but zeros, pixels began to flicker. In moments, the flickering turned to numbers, and the numbers to hard, healthy data. Elsewhere around the room, similar readouts from thrusters and fuel lines and guidance hardware began to appear on other screens. At their consoles, the controllers who had grown to accept the absence of Odyssey as a given on this mission were as transfixed as the ECOM. In the spacecraft, Swigert, who had brought about the resuscitative magic, finished his work, floated back down to the tunnel, into the limb, and attached his headset. So we had performed the procedure Exactly as you say. Okay, how does the uh, telemetry look on our uh, on the uh, old Odyssey? 
Brand scanned the readouts on his screen and listened to the reports coming in from other controllers on the flight director's loop. It uh, doesn't look too cold. Looks pretty good. Okay. Thank you very much. You bet. We're going to need him. How does it feel, Jack? I tell you, Zeke, it's cold up in there. I don't know whether we'll be able to sleep up there tonight. It must be about 35 or 40 degrees. Right, that's what I was worried about. Right now, uh, we're uh, getting two sets of uh, CWGs on. It's not uncomfortable at all in Aquarius, but it uh, definitely is cold in Odyssey. Roger. Swigert was now instructed to shut the command module down again. Mission Control had what they needed. The command module's equipment was not as cold as first thought, and they received good telemetry from the systems. As Jack Swigert disappeared back up the tunnel, Jim Lovell floated backwards and leaned against the wall behind him. He was relieved at the state of his command module, but only a little. It was indisputably good news to get such temperature readings from the guts of the ship. But 21 degrees above zero was still 11 degrees below freezing. And for cold-sensitive equipment, that was still less than optimal. Besides, even if his command module was temporarily healthy, his lunar module evidently wasn't. A short time before the Odyssey power-up began, Brand had at last come on the line to tell him that the earlier bang and snowflakes from the descent stage had been an explosion in battery number two. And while the Capcom hastened to pass along Don Arabian's diagnosis that the problem was minor, the commander felt uneasy. The sick battery kept triggering a master alarm light on the instrument panel, and since the engineers had failed to predict that the battery would blow in the first place, their prognosis for its continued good health was somewhat doubtful. But more troubling for Lovell was the upcoming mid-course burn. Even if his limb battery did stay stable enough to keep putting out electricity, and even if his command module did stay warm enough to function when the time came, it would all be pointless if the spacecraft did not get back into the middle of its re-entry corridor. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 283 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, Encouragement from the President. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was my pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Well, we have some good news we are all the way caught up with the main RSS feed. Episodes 1 through 108 are available on the archive. 
and the rest are available on the main feed. To find the archive episodes, search for Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute our Mercury-level donors. There are 92 so far this year. Mercury donors contribute $20 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Mercury donors. My sources for this episode were Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, the Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and the Johnson Space Center. want to send out a special thanks to Mrs. SRH for filling in for me last week. I had some kind of virus and I could not talk without coughing. I made a few attempts to record the episode, but I just could not get it out. So Mrs. SRH filled in for me, and I thought she did a great job. And I think many of you did too, because we received quite a bit of of emails complimenting her, and she really appreciated that. Well, I have waited for over five years to break out my Nixon impression. (laughs) How did I do? Don't answer that question. (laughs) I hope that wasn't too silly. Of course, that was Mrs. SRH playing the role of Marilyn Lovell. So now she has appeared in two consecutive episodes. Mm Mm-hmm. The conversation came directly out of Lovell's book, Lost Moon, which I have used extensively for this Apollo 13 series, and I can highly recommend it. I guess the conversation was based on Marilyn's memory of the phone call. According to the book, Marilyn was trying to watch the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite when Nixon called and he interrupted that. (laughs) The president had a keen interest in this mission. In fact, most of the country did. But the president was receiving twice-an-hour updates. So that's a lot of updates. I thought it was kind of funny how Anders gave Nixon odds of 60-40 for the mission, for the Apollo 13 crew surviving, to which Nixon replied, Borman says 65-35, as though he had calculated it so precisely. (laughs) The second part of this episode was, of course, temporarily powering up the command module to give the crucial equipment a check to make sure it would still operate when they powered it up for real for re-entry. You know, I'm not sure what they would have done if there was a crucial equipment failure, but NASA wanted time to make a correction if possible, so it was, I think, a good idea to check that out and go ahead and power it up since it didn't take too much electricity to do that. Anyway, it was good that everything was still functional and that it wasn't quite as cold as NASA initially thought. And I think Borman now is going to have to recalculate his odds. <laughs> anyway, I placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check those out if you get a chance. I was delighted to receive many donations to support the podcast over the past week. Dave H. from Indiana sent in another donation this year and pledged on Patreon 
which moved him to the Orion level. Stephen G. sent in another donation this year and is at the Orion level. Ben K. sent in another donation this year and is at the Orion level. Ben K. also pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Olfert B. from Germany donated above and beyond the Orion level and earned his shooting star emoji. He also pledged on Patreon for next year at the Orion level. Charles C. from Texas donated at the shuttle level. David E. donated at the Apollo level and earned his satellite emoji. Christoph M. donated at the Apollo level and earned his shooting star emoji. David T. donated at the Apollo level. John G. from Illinois donated at the Gemini level. Fuchcha, the panda, in Crediton, Devon, UK, donated at the Soyuz level. Nick C. donated at the Mercury level. James C. donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Anthony D. from Sydney, Australia, donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Derek R. from Australia donated at the Mercury level. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. Mark C. donated at the Sputnik level and earned his rocket emoji. Jimmy from Garden Fork Radio donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Fixologist donated at the Vostok level. Kai B. donated at the Vostok level. Todd M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level with rocket emoji. Chris M. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Andrew S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And Space Monkey pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you. That was a fantastic week of support for the podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. Our Patreon donors are now at 209 with a goal of reaching 218 in the next four days. So we are nine Patreon supporters below the goal. Our total donors, though, for 2018 have reached 425. Our goal was 418 for 2018. And that means we have achieved the goal, and that is fantastic. And I had a chance to speak to Walter Cronkite about reaching this goal. Oh, it's terrific! The building's shaking. This big glass window is shaking. Now we're holding it with our hands. Look at that rocket go! I share your excitement, Walter, on that one. It is fantastic. As we approach the end of the year, there is still time left to perform the emoji maneuver. Make a donation in December and one in January, or sign up with Patreon. In December and in January when they take your payment, you will automatically be upgraded with a rocket longevity emoji or whichever emoji is next for you. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated in 2018, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. 
Mrs. SRH randomly selected Stuart Drake. That is Stuart Drake. If you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your email address, I will get this mailed out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 284 out by next Thursday. Thank you to all 425 supporters of the podcast, and Happy New Year, everyone.